Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Sligo train tragedy. One woman has died and another has been seriously injured. We'll have the latest live from the scene tonight with Sarah King. Here in Sligo, a woman in her 20s is in a serious but stable condition. The train remains at the scene here. The rail will open tomorrow morning. Is a state home building agency the answer to our housing crisis? We debate. Also on the programme, shock and anger in County Meath over the bombshell news that Tara Mines is to close temporarily and all 650 staff are to be laid off until it reopens. I, I actually can't believe that they had such little um, respect for us working aside there to just think it was OK to do it like that. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight to that train tragedy in County Sligo. A woman in her 40s has died after she was hit this afternoon. Another woman is in a serious condition in Sligo University Hospital tonight. An investigation is now underway into the incident which took place earlier this afternoon and the local community is coming to terms with the tragedy. It happened on the train line at Knox Park in Ballasadare. Well, let's go live now to Sligo for the latest on that tragic incident. Uh, our correspondent, Zara King, joins us live from the scene. Zara, what more can you tell us? Yes, good evening, Claire. So we're here at Knox Park at the moment this evening and the train, it's just behind me here to my right, is still here at the scene. Uh, we understand that the railway track will reopen tomorrow morning, but as you mentioned there, sadly for one family, they did lose a loved one today. A woman in her 40s uh, died in this incident, while another woman in her 20s is in hospital um, in a serious condition, but we did get an update in the last hour to say that that condition is described as serious but stable. Um, just in terms of what exactly happened, well, as you mentioned there, this was the five past three train from Sligo uh, to Connell in Dublin. Of course, locals here are saying to us this evening, you know, the train passes through here every day. Today was uh, a day no different to any other and obviously just a devastating outcome of what happened this afternoon. Um, Irish Rail telling us that information this afternoon about that incident um, saying that it had happened at the time there were around 100 passengers uh, on that train clear and of course they had to remain on the train for some time uh, until they could be cleared to come off. So at around just before 6 o'clock the 100 people on board uh, were taken off. They walked around 200 metres up the tracks before they were picked up um, by bus. The investigation into what exactly happened is ongoing. Uh, that has been continuing throughout the afternoon and into the evening. Uh, just as we arrived here this evening, uh, we saw the fire brigade leaving. So there was a huge response in terms of the emergency services. You had um, Gardaí ambulance and of course the fire brigade here uh, working to, um, I suppose, uh, establish what had happened and also to take care of those two people um, at the centre of this. Now, just before we came on air this evening, uh, Claire, we were also speaking to the local parish priest, uh, Father Tommy Towie. Um, he just came down here. He was, said he was away all day. 
And he said he wanted to come down this evening just to sort of be here and to say a prayer, he said, close to the scene. He said that um, everybody here, understandably, is very shocked and upset by what has happened. And of course, their thoughts are with the families of those at the centre uh, of this tragic incident. As I say, investigations ongoing, perhaps more clarity tomorrow morning. Okay, Zara King, uh, joining us from Ballastador this evening. Thank you for that. Thank you for that update on that tragedy in County Sligo. Well, Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles and Aintu TD Pather Tobin are with me in studio. And I'm also joined by Solicitor Damien Tansey, um, who will be discussing issues around personal injury claims and the insurance industry. But first tonight, to those temporary layoffs at Tara Mines in County Meath. Um, and I want to just get your um, reaction to that news. You're both local um, um, public representatives in the area. Shane Castles, I mean... I'm wondering on this one, you know, how there have, there have been government <coughs> interventions. We heard from Simon Coveney um, that there, there have been discussions with Tara Mines. They were aware of the problems with, you know, energy costs, with pressures on the company. Now we've seen a temporary shutdown and this, the, the layoff of 650 workers temporarily. Um, how long has this been in the ether, if you like, and, and how caught on the hop really were government by all of this? Okay, well, first of all, just in those intro uh, shots that you showed, Claire, two of those 650 miners uh, were interviewed and they were Mick Fitzsimons and Jerry Devins, and they expressed their anger and hurt at management as well in the manner in which they've handled that. And I met with management this afternoon and I said to the general manor, manager, Gunnar Nystrom, uh, the very words that they, those two men just spoke in your clip, I said them back to him because he needed to hear those because the manner in which they have acted unilaterally is, has been, is being held with disgust, mm. quite frankly, in Navin at the moment because they acted without any consultation with union or government in, in, in implementing that. So on those issues of energy costs... and So other government completely caught in the hop so, here, well, despite being in talks with the company for quite some time about the pressures they said they were facing. I think, un unfortunately, these guys were more interested in the stock exchange than, and, than, than their employees in this respect. And in respect of the issues that they are facing, we looked at the issues mm -hmm. on zinc price, which have fallen through the floor and obviously has impacted on this. And then the, the associated issues on energy, on inflation, but also on the quality of the zinc that they're pulling out of the mine, which unfortunately, because the mine in this part is coming to the end of its life, is of lower quality than it was 10 years ago. The issue now is to make sure that we stabilise the mine, that in 10 years' time, when we get to the new reservoir that has been discovered, which is called Tara Deep, and is going to be very profitable for this company, mm. that we make sure that they're still in situ, and to the 650 miners, and the 3,000 people in the Navan and Meath area who are dependent on a living out of the mine are actually kept afloat. Okay. And I think they have a duty of care to their workers in All this right. respect. OK, well, they will say they're protecting their workers by shutting down the, the, the plant temporarily. Yeah, and um, not paying it, them while they're on, on that leave. This happened... In, this or, whole, in order to protect this and to save the company. This happened 20 okay. years ago as well. Uh, this Actually, this is not unprecedented. It happened 20 years ago. They did look after their workers on this occasion. And I would still, at this late stage, ask for engagement with management, with the assistance of government as well, to help the 650 miners. OK, uh, Pather Jabin, your, your take on all of this, obviously, a huge impact impact on the local community as well. We know that there are 650 workers directly, I suppose, employed by, by Tara Mines, but outside of that, there's another some 2,000 two, 2, um, jobs, I suppose, that will be directly, you know, ancillary to, to the mines themselves. Um, your, your view on whether the government could have done more here, or as Shane Castles is saying, that the company needs to, you know, really step up and ensure that, that, it, that it stays open, it stays running and those workers 
yeah. do return to full employment. Yes, yeah, so Shane is, is right in terms of the issue of the responsibilities of the company. There's no doubt that the manner in which this was done was absolutely wrong. Secondly, there's no way that they should do this to employees and leave them without anything. That's absolutely wrong. And that has to change. And I would really call out to them to really start to negotiate with the unions. But I raised the issue about cost base uh, back in April. Back in April, I asked for Eamon Ryan to meet with uh, management within uh, Tara Mines because even back then, the story was going around that there would be jobs under pressure if the cost base wasn't dealt with. So we have a number of variables which are leading to the damage uh, at Tara. Zinc price is obviously one of them. The dollar uh, strength is another. But cost base is key. So the second biggest cost that Tara Mines has is electricity. And it's gone through the roof. So... There are mines, for example, in Sweden that have exactly the same zinc price, the same dollar issue, but they have a lower okay. uh, cost so you, in electricity. Are you saying, Pather, that there should have been good government intervention to, to assist Tara Mines with the high energy costs that they were facing? I'm saying that the government, the government need to get off their hands in terms of the price of electricity in the first place. Ireland yeah. has the highest cost. All right, but specifically in relation to well, Tara Mines? I, I would say that Tara Mines is not the only business that's suffering in relation to this. Remember that the cost per unit in Ireland is double the European average. We have the highest... Mm cost of electricity and there will be other job losses in other companies also unless the government resolve <laughs> this issue. The state energy company, the ESB, okay. doubled the level of profit it made last year. It's, it's making a profit of All right. similar to the, winning the lotto every single day at the moment and the government sits on its hands. Government sits on its hands, Shane Castles. Yeah, on that point of energy, Pader, as I said, we met with the management this evening, both the general manager and their head of finance. They actually said energy costs were not the tipping point here for them temporarily closing the mine, even though as large as they were, in a normal year, Tara would cost around 18 to 20 million in their energy costs. This year, they're heading towards 48, but they had actually budgeted in January for 50 million on energy costs. So they had actually made I, the accounts I, in their own accounts, Pader. The head of finance had that said right. that herself. So they said today, to us today, that wasn't the tipping point. It was the price of zinc. My point okay, is, is that we need to make sure that the business plan that they were putting in place is kept, point, is kept in line. So, but they made the point the re, themselves. The request has gone out to Eamon Ryan to meet with he has Absolutely. He, it took two years for, for, for Eamon Ryan to give a licence renewal for the mine uh, recently. Now, I, I honestly believe that the Green Party have an ideological objective to keep electricity prices high because okay, it, well, it we reduces... don't have the Green Party represented yeah, here tonight. It, 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 they and have, and they, Eamon, Ryan, they have been, Eamon Ryan has said that he will, he, will, uh, he will meet and he will engage with the company. Well, well he hasn't over the last six months is, is the key point. And he hasn't reduced energy prices, which is key for businesses to be able to survive. All right. OK, um, we're going to talk about a different story uh, now tonight uh, um, around new research that was carried out by Aviva Insurance that shows uh, the insured... Uh, the insurance company investiga are investigating around 800 new suspected fraudulent claims since 2021, uh, worth around 30 million euro. Uh, dozens of people have also withdrawn personal injury claims prior to a court hearing due to suspected fraud or exaggeration. Um, and I want to uh, turn to Damien Tanzi now on this. Um, Damien, you know, you, you represent people who would take claims to court? When you hear what Aviva are saying about, you know, those, there, there are withdrawals, so the personal injury claims essentially are coming down because they know that there will be, they will be fought at court level and as a result that people are, you know, scared off essentially from pursuing them further. Would you agree with that on the ground from what you're seeing <clears throat> and the clients you're working with? Aviva is an English company. The other big insurance company operating in the Irish uh, sector is AXA, which is a French company. The insurance industry as a whole has been unrelenting in its campaign to persuade government that the high cost 
of premiums in Ireland is as a consequence of the uh, personal injury claims, their number and their value. Now, <clears throat> to, to, to really understand and uh, <clears throat> assess the extent to which, for example, that is the case, you have to look at, <clears throat> a, say, the only indigenous Irish company, which is the FBD, as compared with the uh, Aviva and AXA. The Irish government have never, successive Irish governments have never sought the figures from any of the insurance companies in terms of their profits in Ireland. Okay. So, uh, so just the FBD in February of this year uh, produced their figures and they were twice the expected, uh, they, 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 they were twice as large as the figures were expected to be. And one can only assume that if they're the smallest player in the Irish market, that the other companies are making a fortune. Okay, so, That's, they, so yeah. what you're saying, Damien, is there are giant profits being made and they're talking up uh, personal injury claims and it's affecting then people's it, premiums. It, it, this is not unlike uh, Boris Johnson and Trump in their tactics. Uh, if an issue that is uncomfortable arises, they create noise in another area and distract the public's okay. attention. Okay, I want to ask you this because a, we away did, from, yeah, away, 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 away yeah. from. We, now, look, we, the, we did ask Aviva to come on the program tonight. They, they are their statistics, their report that, that that's showing the cost to them right. um, of all of these claims. Um, they they weren't available. We also asked um, you know representatives from the insurance industry as well to come on the program. But they have said in a statement earlier on today there seems to be a cohort of individuals who are willing to fake accidents and personal injuries in the hope of receiving a generous payout from the courts. Is that not true? Well, I, I don't accept that it is. I'm At for, all? Yeah, well, well there, there are bad apples in, in every situation. Uh, I'm at this business 43 years. I spend most of my life now in medical negligence. But, but I also handle and have been involved in this sector for 43 mm. years. In all of that time, I came upon three cases. I checked my records today and I came upon three cases where I decided that I couldn't believe uh, my client. And when I arrived at that point in relation to my dealings with that client, I indicated to the client that I could not okay. continue So you didn't believe them and you didn't want to yeah, represent and it, them? And in fact, had I continued, it would have been unprofessional of me to All do right. so. But the court itself <clears throat> is well capable of rooting out those. And, the, and, and there are numerous instances of late okay. where cases came before the court, right. the court was unimpressed by the evidence of the claimants and uh, threw them out. So the system itself is well capable okay. Well, let's of talk about that. The... the system itself is functioning, Shane, um, Shane Castles, but what we are hearing from Damien Tanzi is basically the government is singing um, to, to the, you know, the tune of the insurance industry here. And they're, they're, they're bigging up all these claims and this, being a, and this being a problem and, you know, that we're seeing legislation that's not needed in this area. OK, well, I suppose the first thing is, in terms of, and you made the phrase, the bad apples. I mean, obviously the fact that 91 claimants uh, withdrew their claims shows that there are bad apples. The fact that there are 800 being investigated with a total potential claim of 30 million shows that there are plenty of bad apples, but are way more than just one or two. And that's what and one it, insurer, that's with yeah, Aviva alone, just, with, with just one insurer alone. And so there's plenty of people obviously out there who are prepared to try and game the system and actually uh, gain money. And from a government perspective, obviously... 
then Minister of State, Sean Fleming, when he was uh, the minister responsible for financial services, he did introduce the action plan uh, in terms of um, the insurance reform. There were 66 actions set out in that, as you know, Damien. I think 90% of those now have been implemented. Mm. We have seen the president sign that into law just prior to Christmas. And as a result of that, and it just goes to show with people withdrawing claims, we have seen a lower um, a reduction in the amounts being paid out. So it showed yeah. that government action in that space All has right, been working. All right, but let's talk about, uh, if we're talking about the reduction in the amounts paid out, let's bring Peter Boland here um, from the Alliance for Insurance Reform, who joins us on Skype tonight. Thank you for joining us on the programme, Peter. And um, just to come to you on this, um, are we seeing then government interventions leading to lower premiums? Are they bringing the premiums down? No, we're not. And what we've heard tonight is more of the same old, same old from the vested interests on both sides. Essentially, there's uh, plenty of snouts in the trough, uh, to quote one of our leading financial journalists a few years ago. And if anything, the amount of money that's been made is increasing right now. So on the legal side, for example, the latest central bank report on private motor insurance shows that legal fees per litigated case have gone up by a third in the last six years. Uh, and on the other side of the fence, uh, the insurance industry have been given uh, everything that they sought in terms of uh, the reduction in claims. Uh, the number of claims is down 46% in the last six years. The average award per claim is down. And uh, just to make the point on something that Mr. Tanzi said, that all of the data proves that it is claims that drive the cost of insurance. On motor, it's 46% of your total premium, uh, followed only second uh, in line by legal fees, which account for 10% of the total premium. So the data is there. It's very uh, hard, if not impossible, to deny it at this stage. And all we get really is the same tired old narrative, which essentially is trying to distract from the fact that for policyholders who are paying the entire bill on this, Nothing has improved. Mm. And this is where government come in. Government can cite all the stats they want about the number of actions that have been achieved, but it's not bringing the level of premiums down. And ultimately, now there are a couple of key things that need to be done. Uh, incumbent insurers, their feet need to be held to the fire uh, on this in order to yield the benefits of the reforms that are already through. We need additional competition into the market because this market is clearly... Uh, uncompetitive and showing all the signs of that right now. Uh, and finally, government needs to look after sectors that simply cannot get cover anymore because they've been discarded by insurers. Uh, but today's narrative, uh, we do not buy one bit. To be honest with you, uh, we have a lot of credit goes to Aviva for the strong stance that they've taken on fraud. But the reality is uh, that they're an outlier in this and the majority of insurers would prefer to settle uh, in cosy little deals with plaintiff solicitors uh, and pass the cost on to policyholders who, as I said, ultimately pay the bill. Okay, uh, so... You can come in further on that. There is, uh, Peter's right, there's massive profiteering happening uh, within the sector uh, at the moment. The sector says that about 20% of claims are fraudulent, yet only about 0.37% of claims are actually sent to the Garda uh, fraud unit uh, to, to investigate. So massive disparity there. What you need is the Financial Services Ombudsman's Office to be able to start to work out what level of profit the other firms are making to, to identify the profiteering that's happening. So, for example, the new Food Ombudsman's Office has the power now to get information on profits from 
factories and supermarkets, we need the same level of uh, rigor in terms of uh, insurance as well to, to the stop transparency them. there. Yeah, to, to make to sure see that they're, what profits they're are being made. Yeah. Briefly, Damien, on yeah, that yeah. because it was a point that was brought up by Peter. Legal fees have gone up. I mean, you can't say you're not an interested party here. Um, it, it would certainly be in your favour to ensure that people uh, still continue I, 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 to take claims a, to court. I am an interested party, and that's why I have, I've been invited onto the panel this evening. That's my profession. That's what I make my living at. But I've always acted for the individual against large corporations, against the state and so on. Mm -hmm. Access to the courts is a fundamental uh, cornerstone of this uh, state. And yet, successive governments have, uh, through their actions, put obstacles in the way of people having access to the courts. For example, PIAB, which is paid for by the state, is an extra layer in the personal injury area. So you cannot bring a claim to the court until you first bring your action before PIAB. That's paid for by the state. It's an extra layer mm. that but the I, insurance I, I, company ultimately right. has to pay for. Now, if Viva are seeking to represent fraudulent claims as being another cost that is fueling the increase in premium, that suits them. They have already persuaded the government and a little more than 50% of the courts that the problem is with claims as opposed to uh, <clears throat> other matters. Like, for example, okay. the millions that they're collecting in premia every year and bringing away from All the right. state. Look, I just want to uh, get Shane in just very briefly on this, Shane. I mean, point is, you know, uh, as Peter was saying there, you know, we really need to hold their, their feet to the fire, that there's, there's, there's a lack of transparency. We don't know what profits are being made and that we need to look at that as well as looking at the, the personal injury claims and, and all of the costs that go with that. Yeah, no, and I wouldn't disagree and I actually want to praise Peter for the work that he's done. He obviously liaises closely with us in the Iraq and the work that they've done in the Insurance Reform Alliance as well. I, I would say that in respect of the Personal Injuries Board, I mean, that is there to try and actually reduce the expense and the time associated with personal injuries and all that litigation and that's there to assist, not to actually obstruct. All right, there we'll have to leave it. Right. My thanks to Damien um, and, and to Peter. Sorry, we're out of time on that, Damien. Shane and Pather are staying on with me. Coming up next, we debate a possible solution to the housing crisis. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles, a TD, Pather Tobin are still with me. We're also joined by Dr Rory Hearn from Maynooth University and Tom Phillips, a planning consultant at Tom Phillips and Associates, to talk about a possible solution to the housing crisis. Well, we'd all welcome that. Um, Rory Hearn, this is your paper, your report, um, your idea. Uh, Homes for Ireland Agency is what you're calling it, um, coordinating delivery nationally, essentially one-stop shop one state agency to provide housing in this country. How do you envisage it would work? Yeah, I think the what the idea, core idea, is that we have billions in surplus available now and we need the construction of social and affordable housing on a... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scale that is significantly beyond existing housing targets. And the paper makes the case that the private market is not delivering on the scale that's needed. It's not delivering affordable housing. And therefore, what are we going to do? And so we make the case, myself and Phil Murphy, who wrote the report, um, that if we look at health, education, we employ nurses, we employ doctors, we employ teachers to guarantee the provision of health and education. Housing is as fundamental in people's lives, even more than health and education. So the question is, why are we not directly employing the public employees who could deliver housing? And really the point is that when we look at construction and we look at the industry, the industry has changed fundamentally in the last 10 to 15 years. It is now um, very significant issues of subcontracting, what we refer to as bogus self-employment, So the idea is that the state would set up a public enterprise, a state enterprise that would directly hire all the skills needed to deliver housing, to build it directly, and also to set up modular factories that could deliver potentially thousands of homes. There's a new factory been set up in the UK that's delivering 4,000 homes per year in factory uh, delivery. This is to fast-track house building. Let's talk about those jobs, those construction jobs you're talking about. So now they're public sector workers. Mm. Um, We want to have... uh, And where where are we going to... I suppose, how are we going to recruit uh, these builders? We know that there's an issue, you know, privately, publicly, everywhere. It's not just an Irish problem. It's very hard uh, to get con- construction staff. How are they going to be trained up? Will those jobs be permanent jobs? Yeah, well, the first thing is they should be permanent jobs because the scale of the housing crisis, the scale of housing delivery that's needed is essentially going into the future. And we also make the case that these, this agency would also refurbish housing. We have a huge issue with our, our housing stock being substandard. And it would also retrofit housing, which is the other issue yeah. in where, terms of meeting where are you climate going targets. To get so, in terms of getting from. the workers, yeah. So, if you provide permanent employment that is well paid, you would attract the workers. Because part of the problem that I said in the construction industry is it's not providing permanent contracts, it's boom bust. And so, people, particularly young people, are reluctant to go into it. So you would attract in the construction workers through these quality public contracts. Also, the state could purchase. There's construction companies right now going bankrupt in this country. There's a modular factory being closed in the UK. It could buy these and start to develop the public company that way as well. All right. Um, Tom Phillips, I want to bring you in on this. Um, it's a, it's an idea. It's not necessarily a new idea. We have heard it from opposition before looking for this you know, big state um, 
company to move in and get the houses built and meet those housing targets because we know we are uh, really in need of homes in this country. Could this work? I don't think so because we already have, and I, I disagree with it, we already have a land development agency. We've already set up a state body to work with the private sector and develop housing. They've identified a lot of state-owned land that can be brought forward for housing in the short term and they're finding difficulty. If you look at the Central Mental Hospital that was with the, the Planning Appeals Board for 14 months, before it got, that's a state body applying to a state body for planning permission, and it was held up. So there's no, there's no uh, evidence that setting up another state body would make it any faster. So we already have excellent world-class property companies in Ireland that are in, impeded in trying to deliver houses at the moment. And the last thing they need is to be nationalised, because that means that, and the reason of boom and bust is that that's the property game. There is uh, highs and lows, and you'd have all these people fully employed Who's going to pay for all this? Because it means that if there's a downturn, that you can't let these people go, the workers, because there's um, because they're state employees, and unfortunately, that we can't afford that. And, we, the, and you can see with the LDA the difficulty they have in delivering certain houses. They identified it could take six, six years to identify or to deliver what they have at the moment. So if they set up a new body, that could take several years to set that up. So we've about ten years off delivering the houses. So I just think I don't think it's needed, and I don't think it would work. Okay, uh, that's the argument that's being made. We have the LDA. We know that they have projected, you know, uh, housing targets that are really quite low. People have been quite surprised at, at the targets that are that are expected over the next few years. And um, when we have, you know, the Taoiseach saying we need two hundred and fifty thousand homes, how would a new state body deliver those homes? Well, the first point is the Land Development Agency is not a direct builder of homes. It's essentially an asset manager of public land. It wasn't set up as a public building agency. But would we agency. have the same issues and with what Tom's talking about? No, you wouldn't, about because you would have the ability... all those problems of, of that course are you would have issues. Of course you would have issues with planning. Would, You'd have to work on that. But I, I think the point is the biggest constraint is not actually planning. We have 70,000 units with full planning permission not being built. The issue is the market, and as Tom referred to it as a property gain, Game. The issue is that it's about investment, what's profitable, what's not, what's viable, what's not. And for we need to guarantee the provision of housing. We cannot let it be reliant and dependent on a market system that is just boom and bust. We have to guarantee housing just like we guarantee health and education. OK, Shane, I want to bring you in on this. Um, you know, Fianna Fáil reminisce on a time of the social housing boom under their government, you know, in, in the 60s and the 50s. And clearly, you know, the government again wants to mark itself out of, as capable of doing this. Would you not be in favour of such a move to get homes built? Um, first of all, can I say, and, and Rory touched on the point that he said that the private market was clearly not delivering. Well, I'll tell you what, Rory, step away from the books and come down to my town in Navan and myself and Pather here will bring in a walking tour but there's probably over a thousand homes being built at this moment in time. It is just literally... And homes and, 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 built and, by the and, private and, market and, this year? And just across... You're going to have 30,000 homes... If you to insult me or, by saying step no, no, away not, from the books... I'm not insulting you. Yes, you I'm are. Gonna, I'm going to bring, bring you around... That's a suggestion I'm gonna, that I'm, gonna I'm bring not living you, in reality. I'm gonna, I'm how many well, private homes not, are being... I'm going to bring you down. How many private homes are being built this year? If you just let me... How many private homes are being built this Let me finish, OK? If you come down and see it... When you start throwing slagging around saying, oh, if you come away from the books... Well, I'll put it this way. Go down the road to Shangana, where the LDA are delivering one of the largest schemes in the country with 597 homes, 300 of which will be cost rental, which I understand 
understand you do actually agree with it as well. Come down to Navin and see where this year we have 155 million euro worth of projects for 515 homes on social homes, on direct bills okay. in the county. There's the result of that. So if you're going to come forward with ideas, at least have the decency to accept and acknowledge what is being done in the country because homes are being built. If you were listening to some of the commentators at the moment, you'd think there's none. So when I say step away from the books, come down and see it on the ground, see what's happening, see what your Shane, own eyes, the construction Shane, teams. Can I, can I ask you what Dara O'Brien's target on, on around social housing was for last year? Yeah, well, I think we had a delivery of, in total, uh, and, and ex exceeded the target of, I think, 28,000 homes in total, yeah, you're which is 29,000 homes. Yeah, that's across the board. I'm, not, I'm talking about those, social and affordable half, half homes. Half of those were social homes delivered last year. So, I mean, certainly... Minister, no, there, was, there was there were 8,500 well, social and affordable homes built so last indeed. year. And, 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 certainly, and certainly Minister O'Brien is... So the target was not met Certainly Minister O'Brien is making sure that in conjunction with approved housing bodies, because sometimes it's kind Maybe of... Maybe like, the problem is you're not reading Because sometimps approved housing bodies and others are like tutted and say, no, that's not delivering. They are very much delivering social homes. They, they tarnish them down and opened 110 uh, to a housing scheme here in, in, in my own town last year. Target. So certainly in terms of those, and it's not a one solution. It's not, we're not going to go to a socialist uh, scenario of building every home by public homes. It is going to be uh, all sectors of the economy firing on all cylinders to make sure you have social cost rental. I think you think you don't accept all of the different schemes that have been put in place that are making a significant imprint on the market and in conjunction with the private market that is how we're going to make sure the we're actually providing right. homes for, so is, for people. Is only, so the reality is only 8,500 social and affordable homes were built last year. That is less okay. than the 14,000 target. And 70% of those were bought from the private market. They were not direct build. So maybe you could actually look uh, exactly. at... What's wrong, wrong with that? Shane. What's wrong with because that? Because you're some kind of ideology problem. No, it's not, not actually Shane, building no, through Shane public Rory, capacity. I want to let another Would you prefer them on the street? Sorry, Would you prefer them on well, the street? you're the ones Shane. putting them on the street. You're the ones lifting Rory. the eviction ban that puts 15,000 families on the streets. Ideology lands where you're living. Let's talk about this plan. We've heard it from, you know, across the board. We've heard it from opposition parties as well. Is this the solution we need? We've heard from Shane how there are very many interested parties in the arena of building homes. Yeah. Is this what's needed now, an umbrella, a state-run umbrella to actually get the homes built? Well, first of all, Rory is absolutely right in terms of the fact that we're not at all meeting the targets that we need to meet. And that's as plain as, as day to most people who are in search of a house at the moment. But the truth of the matter is, I, I think this needs, this, this needs two wings for this solution to be to be achieved. So yes, I do believe that we should have a state, <clears throat> a state housing agency to to plan, to design, to to tender. Uh, but I honestly believe that you know the private sector also does really good work in terms of building homes, and the tendering of those contracts to a state agency would be the best solution uh, in, in my view. Because building companies do great work, and I'm speaking to local builders at the moment, and they're not building. They're simply not building because of the inflation rate within the housing sector is so high. By the time they're looking at, at the prices that the state is providing, and they know that in three years when the project is finished, that they will have exceeded that price and therefore there'll be no money in it for them. I know of particular builders who are going bust at the moment because of the rate of inflation in the housing sector. The government needs to allow for that if they, if they hope to get those houses to be built. We need, like, there's 100,000 workers were forced out of the country uh, during the last crash. We need to start to pull some of those construction workers back. Would that back be a good way country. of getting them back, offering them pensionable jobs, offering them, you know, pay grades well, overtime, there's, there's all no of doubt, that under... 
Pay civil servants. Pay terms and conditions are really important for people uh, in, in terms of working. But I, I honestly think the state does do is not good at certain things. It's very good at education. It's very good at, at health. But like, if you look at even the, the, na the, the National Children's Hospital at the moment. So you're saying you we at, don't need another agency for this? Well, I, I, I think the, the solutions are fixing the planning crisis. The solutions are getting construction workers uh, back into Ireland. And the solutions are making <clears> sure that we have a, a local builders able to make a margin so that they can build in the long term. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the... And we keep hearing, and we'll hear from Tom again on this, about planning hold-ups, about, you know, um, um, residents' associations saying, no, we don't want this built. It's, it stalls developments, and that's what's stalling developments. That's why, where we are seeing delays and we are seeing hold-ups. How do we know under a new state agency that all of this would just go away? Well, it's not that all of it would go away, but it would give you the actual capacity to guarantee you can build social and affordable housing. That's what setting up a state agency would give you. And Shane can throw, you know, comments all he wants. The reality is the housing for all targets are 14,000 social and affordable homes per year. They didn't go anywhere near meeting those this year. They're not going to meet them next year. And even those targets themselves are way too low. Our estimates, when you look at, for example, we don't include households in HAP, <laughs> They're closer to 40,000 social and affordable homes is what we so need So the target, the timeline around all of this, because I'm imagining that if we are going to employ construction workers, set up an agency, train apprentices, bring them all through, this is going to take time. This is it, going it, to take years. It would take, it, it would take time. It would take a number of years to get it going. But if we don't start now, it's going to be even more years down the line. And we need to be really clear. There are large vested interests in this country who dominate the property industry, who do not want a public construction company that would be serious competition, that could offer affordable isn't, homes isn't, and decent all contracts. Right. Isn't and that work? true, just, Tom no, Phillips, no, that no, there are developers out there and it's the last thing they'd want to see? Well, absolutely, because we already have that. We already have the Land Development Agency, which is already in competition to a degree. It's working in some cases with developers, but it's also in competition for, the, for land. So, and, and the LDA is set up to bring forward state land and to unlock some of these blockages. And the last thing we need is another body on top of all this, because there are so many barriers to development at the moment, whether it be financial contributions or all these other things. And it is the private sector that has been delivering since but about the 80s. But is it also the private so sector that's deciding whether or not to push ahead, you know, at, at, with, with with, so, with, with homes, be the private and the social and affordable aspect of it, until a time that suits them? No, because I don't agree because there are so many people who are, who are held up in the planning system. There's about 70 uh, strategic housing development schemes waiting with on board Panola for decisions. And there's so many schemes that our people have been back. One of our clients has been in court four times with four different strategic housing development schemes. And he constantly ends up in court with people arguing over what colour a badger is or, you know, we do, bad we, we, do, we do also have, by the way, just in terms of public housing and vested interest, we do have public uh, housing. They're called local authorities. And we have 31 local authorities who are now actually increasing the amount of direct build for the first time in decades. Yeah. And you talked about FINA Are they resourced legacy. well? Can they, they, can they do that job? For, I mean, I mean, yeah. is there a sign that they can do the job to date when we've got these missed targets in social Absolutely. And as I said, they're ramping up now because we did have an undersupply. For the last two governments before this, we had undersupply, totaling probably 100,000 homes. And now okay. for the first time ever, with four and a half billion a year, that Rory's called for unprecedented investment. 20 billion over five years, unprecedented investment that's actually going to deliver public homes. OK, could council just be given more powers, more resources to do it's, that job that you're calling for? It won't be enough. It won't meet okay. scale. It can't set up factories. That, that You need a public agency. <clears throat> All right, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Rory and to Tom. Uh, next, a new report on media finds growing concern over misinformation and disinformation. Do stay with us.
report has found that more than half of Irish news consumers agree that personalised news items could cause them uh, to miss important stories. Reuters Digital News Report Ireland found that trust in news has fallen back to pre-pandemic levels. Well, Shane and Pather are still with me. I'm also joined now by Colleen Morell, <coughs> Professor in Journalism at Dublin City University. Uh, you're very welcome along to the programme, um, Colleen. Let's talk about the key findings in this report. And interest in news has fallen again, because I take it there was a spike in interest around the time of the pandemic um, when everyone was watching in to see what was happening um, with this virus. But now we are back to pre-pandemic levels and in fact they're, they're falling quite rapidly. Yeah, I, I think we're going to look back strangely at the uh, pandemic years as the kind of golden years of journalism because everybody was interested in news. They were locked down. They were sitting on their sofas. They you know, no you had a kind of captive audience. Even young people were watching television. And at that point, there was a 70% interest in news. That's now down to 52%. So it fell drastically last year, and then it's fallen another five percentage points this year. Yeah, let's talk about trust in news. That's also fallen back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, what do you account for this, the, 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 I suppose, growing distrust around news? Um, and are we finding it more among younger people, or, or are there specific age groups that are more likely to not have much trust in, in, in news programmes? Well, overall, it's down 5% this year, but it is sort of gone back to pre-pandemic levels. Also, it's not as bad in Ireland as it is in the UK, in, in the US mm. and in parts of Europe as well. So, you know, in those terms, Ireland's not doing so badly. I think lack of trust is it's more younger people. And in fact, there was one strange statistic that we broke down, which was that young men between 18 and 24 were the most distrustful of news. But actually, when you went up to men over 65, it was very high. It was like 69% trust mm -hmm. in news, but it was very low for young men. And that's to do with negativity. It's to do with lots of things that they encounter um, online these days. It's a very angry place. A lot of social media is very angry. Um, you know, and that feeds in. You, don't, you, you can't be Trump sort of blurring on about fake news all the time without that having an effect. And that sort of feeds into um, different kinds of negativity. Mm. Pather, what would you blame for the erosion of trust in news? I think obviously uh, traditional news is being squeezed out uh, by social media, there's no doubt. And most of the news I think people consume on social media is not, is the, it's not news that they pursue, but it's news that you know, they confront if, if, you know, it comes to them through algorithms, uh, et cetera. I also think that there has been, you know, the, the, uh, the journalism sector, the news sector has suffered significantly in the last number of years. Like the level of funding that has gone into journalism has collapsed really in the last 10 years. Newsrooms are, are smaller than they were. Wages are down uh, in, in many newsrooms. Uh, and, you know, that kind of content that we saw, like investigative journalism, et cetera, isn't there to the same extent as it used to be. And, I think, and that builds trust with an audience. I think believe. it does. I, th I think, you know, high quality, uh, you know, uh, investigative journalism builds, builds trust. The other aspect I would say is that uh, I don't think Ireland has enough diversity uh, in terms of, of media. You know, there are very good journalists and there are very good journalists doing great work. Uh, but in other countries, you would have like a left wing, a right wing, um, a centrist, a liberal and a conservative media. What would you like to see? Well, I, I just think more diversity. Uh, I just and think... What specifically? What in, would the you know, ideal news landscape look like in this day and age? A, diver a, well, a diverse... A more... So what do you believe that the existing voices. media offers in terms of when you say, you know, left, right wing? Yeah, I think that if, if and, and present company excluded, I think that a lot of the you media... You would say that. <laughs> 
A lot of the media is located in a similar space in that spectrum politically in Ireland, uh, vis-a-vis in comparison to other countries. And I think that if you have a different perspective, you don't necessarily see your perspective uh, articulated regularly uh, in the mainstream media in this country. And remember, we only have about a thousand national journalists uh, in this country. It's a very small... Okay. We have about five media, large media companies, and I do think we need more diversity. OK, we need more diversity. Maybe Pather's looking for a new news channel, something offering uh, differing views that are maybe being reflected out there on social media that, that, that many of those people who are angry and express distrust would like to see. It worries me, I suppose, as a former news journalist, a sports journalist myself, that, um, you know, trust, Colleen's right, trust remains high relative to, to other parts of Europe, but consumption of news has dropped. We've gone from 70% during uh, COVID times back to 52%, and that's a worrying stat. Do you know what's worrying as well? In Leinster House, if you want to go buy a newspaper, you won't get one within the circumference. They've stopped selling newspapers in local news agents around the city centre. It's depressing. Now, maybe I'm a dinosaur because I still want to hold... I'd buy three newspapers a day. Um, but how many young people are doing that? They're not. They're looking on social media channels. Now, if that's the case, well, then media outlets are going to have to get with the programme and make sure. I know that online subscriptions to the likes of the Indo and the Times okay. have gone strong. I know even right. from a political point of view, because it's incumbent on us to consume or to bring our message out there. I know in the Fianna Fáil social media channel, our actual consumption and reach has increased 20% in the last year. Okay, so but you're like, is that news? I mean, that's, that's their press releases. Absolutely, it's news, 100%. <laughs> Listen, and it's good news no as well, which I is the most important I need to talk about thing. investing in trust yeah. in all of this. And people would say local journalism is where it's at. And, it's you know, that, that there isn't adequate fund. There needs to be a step in. There needs to be more funding uh, and not just one-off grants for individual uh, programmes. Would no, you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and we've done well, this why work. Why are we so, seeing it? Well, we, we are. In last year's budget alone, something that local uh, newspapers campaigned for uh, strongly was the actual the abolition of that. So we were able to reduce cost and production, but that's not enough. Okay. What I, about local radio? Local radio has actually... what Local radio would have died during COVID and recent times only for the state intervention. And the head of the independent local radio station said every single independent local radio station in the country would have collapsed only for government intervention. All right. That was, that was during the... Absolutely, but they would have been wiped out and gone. And what's important now is during the new media commission... I mean, does, there, does it need to be looked at and reviewed in light so, as so, and what Colleen we're would seeing in this latest the, report? In the media commission, in terms of the, the establishment of the new media commission, we're going to provide for funding in actual local journalism to make sure that young students in particular actually get the opportunities in newsrooms so they get that grounding into the, into the, into the Colleen, new system. Colleen, given that uh, technology like AI has really blown up, how do you think that will impact news events like elections? We could have an election here. How, how, how do you think it's going to influence the news cycle and, and play out in real time? Well, in terms of algorithms, it's going to be that people are getting more and more of what they've looked at already. And, and you know, there's some great contradictory information, actually, in this report, which is, on the one hand, they're worried about what is fake or <coughs> not on the internet. On the other hand, they don't want journalists to pick their stories. They're opting more for algorithms to pick their stories. If you opt for algorithms, then you're going to keep being in your silo. On the other hand, there's an answer to a question... <clears throat> saying, I don't want to be too much in a silo because, <clears throat> excuse me, I won't get challenged or, I'll, you know, um, I won't see other viewpoints. So there is contradiction. But, I mean, you know, you wouldn't want election coverage to go, you know, down the Cambridge Analytica route, which is right. always an, an AI. Um, All right, well, we'll have to see what happens there. We'll probably see it first stateside, but here uh, also. Uh, that is it from us. Uh, my thanks to all our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. <laughs> uh, but all, from all the late team here, good night and do take care.